0: We begin reading at verse 14 of Luke 4, and we read through verse 32, the text making up most of our scripture reading. We will not reread the verses. Verses 16 through 30 is the text, his rejection in Nazareth. We begin reading at verse 14 through verse 32. Hear the word of God. And Jesus returned in the Spirit and the power of the Spirit into Galilee. And there went out a fame of him throughout all the region round about. And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified of all. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up for to read. And there was delivered unto him the book of the prophet Isaiah, or Isaiah. And when he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he hath anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He hath sent me to heal the brokenhearted, To preach deliverance to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind. To set at liberty them that are bruised. To preach the acceptable year of the Lord. And he closed the book and he gave it again to the minister and sat down. And the eyes of all them that were in the synagogue were fastened on him. And he began to say unto them, This day is this scripture fulfilled in your ears. And all bare him witness and wondered at the gracious words which proceeded out of his mouth. And they said, Is not this Joseph's son? And he said unto them, Ye will surely say unto me this proverb. Physician, heal thyself. Whatsoever we have heard done in Capernaum, do also here in thy country. And he said, Verily I say unto you, No prophet is accepted in his own country. But I tell you of a truth. Many widows were in Israel in the days of Elias, or Elijah, When the heaven was shut up three years and six months, when great famine was throughout all the land. But unto none of them was Elias sent, save unto Sarepta, a city of Sidon, unto a woman that was a widow. And many lepers were in Israel in the time of Eliseus or Elisha, the prophet. And none of them was cleansed, save Naaman the Syrian, and all they in the synagogue, when they heard these things, were filled with wrath, and rose up, and thrust him out of the city, and led him unto the brow of the hill, whereon their city was built, that they might cast him down headlong. But he, passing through the midst of them, went his way, and came down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and taught them on the Sabbath days. And they were astonished at his doctrine, for his word was with power. We read that far in God's holy and inspired word. Beloved in the Lord Jesus Christ, the Messiah, our Savior, was the supreme preacher. In his earthly ministry, as he went forth through Galilee and Judea, one of his main works was to preach the gospel. That is one of the main points of this text, and the fulfillment of the prophecy he speaks of in Isaiah 61. But notice at the outset that his preaching was a preaching of both grace and authority. Those two characteristics stand out here. Even as he brought his preaching to Nazareth, where he is rejected of his own people, We see his preaching as a preaching of grace and of authority. Gracious is the explicit description of the preaching in this text. Notice verse 22. And all bear him witness and wondered at the gracious words or words of grace which proceeded out of his mouth. His lips, as we sang in Psalter number and the in number 124 did overflow with this grace. Now we make clear that this grace was particular still. His attitude of favor within his heart was only toward his elect people. He did not have a common grace with a free or well-meant offer for everyone, head for head under his preaching. No nowhere in the text, in fact, we will see. He is not a free offer, a well-meant offer preacher. We see that at the end, or toward the end of the sermon tonight. And yet, he is a preacher of grace. That means that his content was of grace. The content of his preaching was the gospel of grace. It was about God's grace. In verse 19, we find The words, the acceptable year of the Lord. He preached that. And the word acceptable year means the time of favor or the season of God's favor. He preached the season of God's favor to the poor, the brokenhearted, the captives, the blind, the bruised. He had come to save such people. So the content was gracious and it must have been at the same time that his manner was gracious, the way in which he preached, so that all who listened, even the ones who rejected him, notice, saw that he preached words of grace. They were all amazed. He preached with grace, yet, yet at the same time, this supreme preacher spoke with authority, even with sharpness. Look at the, at the end of our scripture reading, verse 32, they were astonished at his doctrine for his word was with power. And that word power literally is authority. He spoke with authority, not as the scribes and Pharisees did, but he spoke with authority. What does that mean? That means that the content, again, was authoritative. Jesus didn't go about speaking whatever he wanted to speak, but again and again as he spoke, he based his preaching, even though he was the Son of God, he based his preaching upon the words of Scripture. And that's what we find here in this text, too. He preaches on the text of Isaiah 61. It's authoritative because it's the very Word of God that he exposits. And then also the manner must have been authoritative. He did not beg. He did not plead. He did not behave as though he was trying to sell something. But he called the people in his preaching to repent and believe the gospel. He preached with authority and with grace. That's the supreme preacher we find here in this text. And the people marveled. At his preaching. In Hope PRC, I'm in the middle of a series of sermons about the public ministry of Jesus Christ. And we are focusing upon his public ministry as recorded for us in the synoptic gospels. Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And where these gospels parallel, we have a sermon as much as possible on that text. And we've seen that in the first year of Jesus' public ministry, the Gospels, Matthew, Mark and Luke, do not record much. But they focus in on Jesus' second year of public ministry, and they especially focus in on his first Galilean tour, when he began to preach everywhere in the northern part of the land of Canaan, and there to bring the gospel, to different places in his homeland. And one of the first places, not the first, but one of the first places that he brought this gospel to, this preaching to, was the town of Nazareth. Luke lists Nazareth first, not because it comes chronologically in Jesus' ministry, but because Luke sees something significant, something important. For here in Nazareth, he came unto his own, and his own received him not. Here in Nazareth, he had grown up. He had lived here for almost 30 years. He knew almost everyone. He had relatives. He had aunts, uncles, brothers, sisters, cousins, nephews. Many friends that he had played with, went to school with, gone to church as we know it with. And in our text we find him returning to his hometown in Nazareth after about a year of his public ministry. And they reject him. Parallel to Luke is Matthew 13 and Mark 6. It is uncertain whether Matthew and Mark record for us the same event. It's possible that Jesus went to Nazareth multiple times. But in Matthew 13 and Mark 6, we find similar events, at least, as He was rejected in Nazareth. Tonight, we focus on His rejection in Nazareth, as Luke has it, under the theme, Christ rejected in Nazareth, first, His preaching, second, the external reception, and then finally, the wrathful rejection. His gracious preaching, the external or outward reception, and then finally, the wrathful rejection. One of the first towns that Jesus visited during his Galilean Galilean ministry was Nazareth, as I said. He probably went to other towns in Galilee, like Capernaum and Cana, but Luke shows us Nazareth. And what we find Jesus doing in Nazareth is quite normal, quite normal, but important. Jesus assembled for worship in a synagogue on the Sabbath day. Now notice those words in verse 16, as his custom was. This had been the custom of the people of Nazareth with whom he had grown up, and this was Jesus' own custom with the visible church of his day. He assembled, he gathered together with the people of God to worship God on the Sabbath day. Children, Jesus went to church. He went to church regularly to worship God. This was his custom, the Word of God says. That means this was his habit. This was his formality. This was his tradition. This was something that he regularly did outwardly. He assembled with the saints. And that is a very important point because liberalism of today would have us believe that Jesus is against outward formality. Liberalism today would have us believe that Jesus is against tradition and against customs and against even organized religion. And that is wrong. What we find here in this text is is the example of Jesus to gather formally with God's people. Now he was against mere formality, but he was for formal worship. It is not true that we should get rid of all customs and traditions, as many say. But we should keep the Sabbath day and come to church and assemble with the saints for formal worship. Jesus shows that example. He kept the fourth commandment in this way. And with His example, He shows here what Hebrews 10.25 says, That we are not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is. And the promise. There am I in the midst of them. So there he was in Nazareth in the midst of what we would call a conservative worship service. This was not a liberal worship service. It was not a worship service that had a band in the front to entertain the people. This was not a worship service where the people were getting up and dancing around in the pews. But this was a worship service, notice, that was very very similar to to our worship services. We would even say this worship service followed the regulative principle of worship. And the the reading and the preaching of the Word was central in this worship service. This was part of their formality, their external worship service. And we can say that's a good thing that Nazareth had. Here we find Jesus reading and preaching. The leaders of Nazareth synagogue knew or had heard that Jesus was a good preacher. He had been ministering for about a year already. And having heard that from other synagogues, perhaps, maybe some colleagues down in Judea, the the ministers of this synagogue asked Jesus to, as we would put it, give a word of edification. He was a reliable expositor of Scripture, and so they asked Him to come to their pulpit, perhaps, if they had a pulpit. And that's what Jesus did. We find Him, in our text, opening the book, and for them... Children, as you know, it wasn't a book with binding, they didn't have bindings back then, but it was a scroll, and so he unfurled the scroll, and there he read from Isaiah chapter 61, recorded in verses 18 and 19 of Luke 4. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he hath anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives, and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. He did that while he was standing up, that was part of the custom of that day to Read the inspired Word of God while standing up, and the people probably also stood up, to show a reverence, a respect for the written Word of God. And then we read that he closed the book, or rolled up the scroll, and gave it to the minister, and then Jesus sat down, that was the custom too, to preach while seated And again, notice how the people of Nazareth are very much like us in a Reformed church, a conservative of conservative worship. They pay attention, maybe even better than some of you are tonight. Verse 20, the eyes of all them that were in the synagogue were fastened on him. As Jesus preached... They listened attentively. From all outward, external looks of it, Nazareth was very much like us. Luke doesn't quote everything that Jesus read, he doesn't quote everything that Jesus preached. But Luke gives us the first words and the gist of Jesus' sermon in verse 21. This day is this scripture fulfilled in your ears. And now Jesus must have explained further than that. Luke says he began to say this. He must have explained Isaiah 61, the text that he was expositing the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He has anointed me. And maybe we would have heard if we were sitting in the pew in Nazareth, the first point of Jesus' sermon, something like this: that the anointed one that Isaiah is speaking about here is not Isaiah himself, first of all, but the anointed one is the Messiah, the promised Messiah prophesied throughout the Old Testament, the Messiah that is to come. Prophet, priest, and king who would save his people. And then the second point may have gone something like this, that this anointed one, this Messiah prophesied in the Old Testament, had as his main ministry or would have as his main ministry when he came, preaching, preaching. Jesus maybe would have pointed out, notice that the word preach is mentioned three times. Preach, preach, Preach. Preach for the salvation of His people. That's what Jesus would come to do. The Messiah, that is. And then the third point of His sermon may have been something like this. How the Messiah came to be a spiritual Savior. The Anointed One in Isaiah 61 is the Messiah. That's the first point. The second point that he came to preach, and the third to save his people from sin as a spiritual savior. And he must have explained how the poor in the text were not, first of all, those who didn't have anything materially, but those who were spiritually bankrupt. How the brokenhearted in the text were those who were crushed by their sin, broken. And the captives were those who who were by nature in bondage to Satan. And the blind in the text were those who could not see their sin because of their pride. And they could not see how they needed God's mercy. And the bruised in the text were those who were suffering from the bruising, the oppression of Satan. Satan. Isaiah prophesied of the Messiah come to be a spiritual Savior from sin and Satan. And not from poverty and physical blindness and bondage to Rome. And Jesus, having explained that, must have said, today, this day, He did say that. This day is this prophecy fulfilled in your ears. This day you see the Messiah, the Anointed One, prophesied in Isaiah 61. This day you don't just see Him, you hear Him. That especially is the fulfillment. You hear Him preaching to you. And this day salvation has come to save His people from sin, from sin. A couple of unpleasant implications or applications that the Nazarites heard or Jesus perhaps explicitly made first. You are sinners in desperate need of My grace. Of Messiah's grace. Whether the people were related to Jesus or not, Jesus told them that Joseph's son, presumably, the son of the carpenter, was telling them that they needed His grace. His grace. Now, that might not sound so striking to you, but put yourselves, people of God, in the shoes of the people of Nazareth, They grew up with someone that they played with. They grew up with this carpenter's son. Perhaps they didn't think much of him. Perhaps there was gossip going around about him. This, 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 This son who was conceived by a woman before she was married. Imagine the rumors that spread about. This young man who was... A carpenter, probably not a carpenter of fancy furniture, of trim and, and nice homes, but but of stools or of walking sticks and ladders, a poorer carpenter, perhaps despised by his friends because they thought he was making himself look better than them. And now this poor carpenter stands up in front of them and says, you need my grace. For I am the Messiah. And grace, grace is a beautiful word, but when grace is, is said to come from someone you despise, you don't want it because grace is so humbling. Grace, grace implies that you are, you are in desperate need, you are a sinner. And you're going to perish, except this this man standing in front of of the church of Nazareth saves you. You need the son of a lowly carpenter to save you. And so also I preach to you this evening, members of First PRC who have a conservative worship, who have preaching central to your worship services, who have as your custom Sabbath keeping coming twice on Sunday even, and who may take pride in that, you're in desperate need still of the grace of this same lowly carpenter to save you from your sins. That was one of the unpleasant implications or applications to the Nazarenes. And the second implication Jesus made was, I did not come to do miracles for you. To be sure, Jesus did miracles. He even did some miracles in Nazareth. But the point of his sermon was, My purpose is not, first of all, to come and do miracles as you desire. Our purpose is to come to preach. Miracles, you see, were signs. They were pictures. Oh, they were miraculous. They were supernatural for certain. They actually happened, but they were meant to be pictures of the spiritual salvation that Jesus was talking about in his preaching. And so Jesus would perform miracles as a sign. Much like our sacraments today. Not not identical, but like our sacraments today. As a picture of His deliverance from sin's guilt and sin's power and sin's punishment. But when the people did not believe in the gospel of the Messiah. He did not do miracles either. Matthew 13, 58. He did not many mighty works there. Why? Because of their unbelief. He did not confirm with the sign of a miracle, salvation to the people of Nazareth. He only preached. He did not give them what they wanted. And He called sinners to repentance and faith. The people of the church of Nazareth were outwardly receptive. They they listened attentively to Jesus' preaching. They maintained an outward formal order, even though their hearts were already beginning to stir within them against this preacher, this carpenter. Verse 22, they all bear him witness and wondered at the gracious words which proceeded out of his mouth. They listened carefully, and they received it You can imagine that the people of Nazareth, maybe after the sermon, talking amongst themselves Wow, what a great sermon. Perhaps you've done that before. What words of grace, what authority. The gospel was preached. Grace alone. They marveled at his content and his manner. You see, beloved, the people, the members of the visible church in Nazareth in Jesus' hometown, were intellectually stimulated with the gospel of grace. They heard the scriptures expounded and they were wowed by those doctrines of grace. Jesus was a great preacher, he did not leave things unexplained. He was not ambiguous. He was clear. Don't underestimate what the people understood with their heads. They were much like us, catechized like many of you children are. They knew the Scriptures well. They had it memorized. And as they marveled at the great preaching they had just heard, Notice what Jesus marvels about. Mark 6, verse 6. Mark 6, verse 6. And He marveled because of their unbelief. Think about that. While they marveled, about preaching of the doctrines of grace, he marveled that they did not believe. What does that tell us? It tells us that intellectual knowledge of the doctrines of grace is not itself faith. Yes, faith includes knowledge, but it's not merely a head knowledge. It's not just the ability to regurgitate facts. But it's knowledge that sinks down into the soul, whereby the heart embraces that knowledge of Jesus Christ, the Savior from sin, my sin. It's a personal and a confident trust in this Jesus, this Messiah, this Savior alone, that He is very God and very man, come to save me from my sin by suffering on the, de- of the death of the cross, to save me from my bondage, from my poverty, from my bruising, from my Desperate wickedness. Marveling at a preacher, the best of preachers in the PRC, or marveling even at the preacher, Jesus, does not make you a believer. It is possible to hold to objective truth and have all the outward right doctrines and not be a believer. It is possible to hold officially and objectively to total depravity and be a proud, proud unbeliever. It is possible our text shows us to be a member of a conservative institute like the synagogue of Nazareth with good conservative worship and still be an unbeliever. So that Jesus marvels at the external reception of the preaching and yet unbelief. And so I call you tonight to repent and believe. Because each one of us have had an external, mere formality. And I'm not calling you to put aside that formality, because you're called to follow the example of Jesus, and worship, and be conservative even. But first of all, you're called to faith. To turn from your mere formality. To turn from your mere externalism. And to trust in Jesus. Savior from your sin. And mine. Examine your life and see. Where worship has been a mere formality. Where it has been a mere intellectual stimulation. Of the doctrines of grace. Grace whereby you may tout yourself as better than others, and turn to Jesus and rest in Him alone for salvation. You and I need His grace as much as anybody else. The Nazarene church was conservative. It was outwardly receptive and intellectually stimulated by the doctrines of grace, but carnal on the inside. And Jesus points out their carnality. Notice three points about their carnality, which we can all identify with. First, their carnality had to, ha- had to do with their desire for the miraculous. Or we would put it today, a-, a desire for the sensational. Jesus points it out in verse 23. You will surely say unto me, this proverb... Physician, heal thyself. Meaning, doctor, heal thine own. That's the literal meaning. Doctor, heal thine own. Apparently, there was a proverb going around in Nazareth and in Galilee, perhaps. People would say, if you're a doctor, heal your own family. We might say today, if you're a landscaper, don't just take care of other people's landscaping, do your own landscaping. If you're a carpenter, get the work done in your own house. And now they say, if you're a doctor, heal yourself. And Jesus explains what they would mean by that when they said it. Whatsoever we have heard done in Capernaum, do also here in thy country. If you're the great physician, now come back to your own country, to Nazareth, and heal the people of your own country They wanted miracles. They wanted Jesus Christ to provide food for 5,000, for example, to heal the blind in their midst, to cast out devils. And so while they spoke about how wonderful his preaching was, their heart desired something else. Not the good news, but something that would be sensational, something that would impress, something new, something fresh, something interesting, something different. And you and I can all feel that in our own hearts. Why did you come to church? Why did you come to church tonight? Yes, I pray that it's that you have a new man in your heart that desires to worship God, but you can feel an old man in there. Maybe I'll hear a different story tonight. Something controversial. Something different, I've never heard before. Something other than... Jesus Christ, come to save me from my sin. That's what the people of Nazareth desired something sensational. Second, their hearts desired the miraculous, not only, but they were distracted, distracted by family connections. Notice verse 22, and all bear witness and wondered at the gracious words which proceeded out of his mouth, and they said, is is not this Joseph's son? Imagine that. You can picture yourself in the narthex again, talking about the sermon, and the people after the service perhaps gathered outside, and they all agreed that sermon was a good sermon. There There were the doctrines of grace expounded in that sermon, and then someone switched the topic. Wait isn't wasn't that Joseph's son? They played maybe something we would call Dutch bingo. Is that not the carpenter? Talked about his job. The poor carpenter, the son of Mary, Mark points out, the son of Mary, brother of James and Joseph and Judah and Simon, are not his sisters here with us? And they got sidetracked by earthly relationships and earthly occupations and perhaps gossip about the relations of Jesus. All is a distraction from the message which Jesus had brought to them. And again, how quickly we get distracted even while we are sitting under the preaching. By relationships, by work, by all sorts of other things from the very gospel we ought to have our attention upon. But above all, the people of Nazareth despise Being called sick sinners. Not only were they desirous of the miraculous or the sensational. Not only were they distracted by family connections. But they despised being called sinners. Remember that was what Jesus was telling them. The broken hearted were those crushed by sin. The poor were those who were bankrupt spiritually. The captives were those who were in bondage to sin and Satan by nature. The blind were those who were so blind they could not see Jesus, even though he was standing right in front of them. The bruised were those oppressed by their sin. And the people despised the description of their misery and their desperate need for this lowly carpenter to save them. Jesus preached the gospel nevertheless. And then he included these antithetical words. It might have been that he was still standing in the pulpit. It might have been also that he gathered the people after they had already dispersed, and he continued. And the last words of our text by Jesus are words that prove that Jesus is not a well-meant offer preacher. They're sharp words. He reminds them of two stories in the Old Testament of Elijah and Elisha. Verse 26 of Elijah, first of all. How God, during the time of Elijah, had sent a famine in the land for about three years and six months. And during the famine, there were many poor people and many widows in Israel in the sphere of the covenant in the church of that day. But, Jesus says in verse 26, Unto none of them was Elijah sent, save unto Sarepta, a city of Sidon, unto a woman that was a widow." Jesus shows from the historical record that God sent Elijah the prophet away from Israel to Sidon, somewhere outside of Galilee, north of Galilee, to a Gentile city. And not just to any Gentile, to a woman Gentile, Jesus emphasizes. Not a man upstanding of a Jewish synagogue, but to a woman, Gentile, widow. And then the second story Jesus tells the people of Nazareth was of Elisha. Elisha cleansed Naaman, a leper. Now there were many other lepers in Israel... Jesus said, many other lepers in the church of that day, but God did not send Elisha to heal all those lepers, but he healed one leper, a Gentile leper, Naaman the leper. What was Jesus saying with these two stories? First, he was preaching election. He was preaching election and reprobation. Jesus did not shy away from that. He was showing that God did not want to save everyone who hears the preaching. He was showing that God did not send the prophets, the prophets of old, neither did He send Jesus now to save every single person in the whole world. Not even every single person in the whole church institute. He was saying Jesus was saying, I didn't come to save everyone in Nazareth. And he's saying tonight too, I didn't come to save everyone necessarily in this institute because election cuts through the sphere of that covenant. Just as Elijah didn't go to every widow and just as Elisha didn't heal every leper, so God does not choose to save everyone. Matthew twenty two fourteen. For many are called, but few are chosen. And Why do many not repent and believe? John ten twenty six. 26. Ye believe not, because ye are not of my sheep, as I said. That's the message that Jesus had proclaimed through his earthly ministry, and here he proclaims in Nazareth as well with these two stories. Even before the people of Nazareth outwardly reject Jesus, Jesus preaches the righteous discrimination of God and God's rejection of the reprobate. He does not shy away from election and reprobation. But secondly, with these two stories, Jesus also prophesies of the gospel leaving the Jews and going to the Gentiles. Elijah and Elisha were both prophets. And Jesus is explaining that their actions of going to Gentiles and healing Gentiles, ministering to Gentiles rather than the Jews is a prophecy of what Messiah would do as well with the gospel of grace. When the Jews rejected Jesus Christ, the gospel would depart from the Jews and it would go to the Gentiles to save them rather than the Jews. Thus a threat, a warning from the word of God to the institution of Nazareth as well as to the institutions of today, you have the gospel preached to you. You have had the gospel of Jesus Christ preached to you again and again and again. You have been intellectually stimulated with the doctrines of grace. You have had it formally. Receive it with your heart. Let it not be a mere formality. Repent when it is. See yourself as sinners in need of Jesus Christ. The threat. And the hearts of of the people in the Institute Church do not receive the gospel. It will depart. And go elsewhere. To save others of God's people. And that's not so nice to hear. But it's a means of grace that comes forth in the preaching. When God's people hear this, they repent. They say, be merciful unto us Nazarenes by nature. The people of Nazareth. Lost it. They were filled with wrath. They rose up. They thrust Jesus outside of the city. They led him to the brow or the edge of a hill, a cliff, where that city was built on. And they tried to push him headlong down the cliff to kill him, to murder him, because that had been in their hearts as they heard the preaching. But his hour had not yet come. That is, God's timing for Christ's death was not yet. And Jesus did a miracle which probably went unnoticed by the Nazarenes even though they desired a miracle. He passed right through the midst of them. But here's why Jesus could not die in Nazareth. He had come to be thrust out of a different city the city of Jerusalem. He had come to be rejected by more than just the people of Nazareth, but of the whole world. He had come to suffer not on the hill of Nazareth, but on the hill of Golgotha. He had come not to be cast down from a cliff in Nazareth, but to descend to the depths of hell while He hung on the cross. He had come not only to suffer the rejection of Nazareth and all the world, but He had come to suffer the rejection of His own Father. And you know why He had come to do that? Because we are all Nazarenes by nature. We have all sinned And sin is rejection of Jesus. Our mere outward formalities and insincere worship is a rejection of Jesus. And we desperately need this Savior to be rejected. Because for our sins, for your sins and my sins, We deserve the wrathful rejection of God. The third point I entitled, The Wrathful Rejection, pointing out the Nazarene's hatred of Jesus and ours by nature. But it also points to what we deserve. God's rejection of us. But the Messiah came. This Anointed One To take upon himself God's rejection in our place. And so I call you again to turn from your sin in true repentance and rely on Jesus alone. Repent of your pride. Repent of your desire for the sensational. Repent of your distraction from the gospel, of your despising of the truth that you are a poor sinner. Repent of your mere formality and cling to Jesus Christ alone. And with that call, you hear him. If you are a child of God, the sheep hear His voice. For the Spirit of the Lord is upon me, Jesus said. And He hath anointed me to preach the gospel to you, the poor, the brokenhearted, the captive, the blind, the bruised in your sin. And this day, too, is the Scriptures fulfilled in your ears. He that hath an ear, let him hear what Jesus by His Spirit saith to the churches. Amen. Let's pray. O God of grace, the gospel of grace is humbling. And so we pray, tend to hearts, our hearts not just to externals, but to souls, that there might be repenting and believing, repenting of our despising of the Gospel, repenting for our pride, repenting for our comparative self-righteousness, repenting of our mere external formality. We ask, O God, forgive us and turn our eyes upon Jesus, that precious Savior, who obeyed all of Thy commandments, perfect love, heart, mind, soul, and strength, and who is our righteousness and who covers us and was rejected in our place, that we might be saved. Comfort us with the knowledge of forgiveness and give unto us renewed zeal in the service of Him.